This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. You know, we live in an age, a culture, and a season in which there are just exceptionally strong opinions on virtually everything. If you doubt that, check your Facebook feed. There are incredibly strong, dogmatic, assertive opinions about virtually everything under the sun shared from one end of the spectrum to the other, shared across virtually every encounter that we have. We live in an age and a culture when people don't have to have all the facts in order to have strong opinions on virtually every topic they encounter. Now, opinions of themselves are not necessarily bad. It's good to have viewpoints. It's good to have filters and presuppositions and a worldview by which we look at things around us. That can be good, but occasionally it's not. Now, part of the problem stems from how our opinions are formed and how reliable they are. Now, opinions are formed because we come into encounter with what you might call data points. In other words, there are things in our life that we encounter and we derive a data point from that encounter. If you were to touch a fire... That experience, that touch, that sensation would let you know that fire is hot. Whatever your future might hold, no matter how far you might live, you would know this much. Fire is hot and it is not to be touched. That's a data point that you've learned experientially, observationally, that frames the way you see the world from that point on. Again, data points are not bad. It's good to know that fire is hot and then it burns. There's all sorts of data points we have. When you look outside the window and you look at trees and clouds and mountains and ocean and all that. Trees are leafy, the ocean's wet, mountains are big and the like. There are data points we have that are absolutely correct. They're right on the money and it's good that we have them because it helps us to navigate the world around us. However, there are times, believe it or not, when you and I, when we don't have enough data points to navigate correctly, and to come to the right determinations. That doesn't necessarily stop us from declaring what we think and what we feel and what we presuppose. And yet there are times when we just don't have enough data in order to know how to deal or how to speak about something that we may encounter. Dear heavens, fast forward back to, you know, February of this past year. Which one of us had given much thought to coronaviruses and COVID and pandemics and the like? None of this was on our radar. All of it was new. And yet, within 10 minutes of this stuff going down, everyone had a strong opinion about it. And guess what? Not many opinions have changed. Some of those opinions are accurate, but not everyone is. Not everyone can be right when everyone sees things differently. But whatever the case is, people hold their viewpoints just very strongly and sometimes gracelessly, sometimes without a lot of compassion and empathy, sometimes without a lot of humility to realize that sometimes we're wrong. Again, irrespective of what our view may be. Sometimes they're wrong. And yet on television, Facebook, school, the gym, whatever encounter you might have, there are experts in every corner of our life who are quick to make conclusions. But again, as I suggested just a moment ago, if we don't have sufficient data points, sufficient facts, sufficient details, then there's times when we're going to be wrong. The conclusions we draw from insufficient data won't work. Those of you who are in the sciences know that you have to have a good data set in order to make good conclusions. But that said, the Bible speaks to these issues, and it uses a word to describe what it is to draw conclusions from data set, whether that data is complete or not. And the word that Scripture uses is the word wisdom. Scripture uses the word wisdom in terms of how we connect the dots. However many dots we have, how we connect them is called wisdom. Wisdom helps us to filter and 
to comprehend the world in which we live. Wisdom provides a framework by which we can go, aha, this data point, that data point, this one, that one. It helps us connect and fuse those dots and then to navigate. Even in unfamiliar territory, even when circumstances that we've never faced come before us, wisdom allows us to take data points of experience in times past and use them in such ways to navigate in the future. Now, something else that wisdom does, wisdom for he who has it, for he or she who has it, wisdom properly grasped reminds us that when we don't have all the data, when we don't have all the information, that it might be appropriate to keep our, ourselves in check. Wisdom keeps you humble. Keeps you humble. Well, in today's text, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is going to talk about that. Paul is going to talk about wisdom over and against the wisdom that was going on in Corinth, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of fallen man. Against all of that, Paul is going to talk about a different set of wisdom. And he's going to remind us that while we have some data points at our disposal as we navigate this fallen world, as we've got some data to work with, Paul's going to say this. We don't have it all and we need to turn to him. We need to turn to God. There are data points that we can only learn from on high. All right, let's look at verse 11 of our text once again. We'll work through this verse, through the balance, and then we'll close in prayer before too long here. Verse 11. Verse 11 says this. For what man knows the things of a man, except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. You know, there are there's two ways. There's two ways, generally speaking, that you'll learn something. Now, the first one we talked about, the first one is experience, observation. You have certain encounters and experiences. You observe certain things in times past that gives you data to work with going forward. So we have experience and observation. The second way that you'll ever learn something is through what we call revelation. Revelation isn't just the book at the end of the Bible. Revelation speaks to this idea that we learn things from a source that is external and usually greater than ourselves. Much of what you know about God or the Bible, much of what you know about the world around you came because someone taught you. Some things you learn through experience, other things you learn because someone teaches you. Perhaps you sit in a pew or a classroom or what have you and you're instructed and because you're instructed, because things are revealed to you that you maybe didn't know before and you wouldn't encounter on your own, because this happens, you grow. Revelation. Revelation that we desperately need, especially when it deals with spiritual matters, because we cannot apprehend those things on our own. Let's play pretend for a moment. Let's pretend. Let's pretend that we're sailors lost at sea. We're out in the midst of the briny blue off the Gulf Coast here. We're out at sea. How do we find our way? How do we find our way to port? How do I find a way in the midst of circumstances that really just were lost within? Well, one way, if you were a sailor, you could drop buoys. You drop buoys in the water. You're sailing along. You drop the buoy. It has a little red dot, red light on it, a beacon. kind of lets you know where you've been. So as you go forward, you drop more buoys, and you look back, and you say, Aha, well, at least I know where I've been. In a sense, that's what it's like to rely only on your experiences to guide you. You're looking back at things that happened in the past, things you did, places you went, conversations you had, and you're using all that information, and you're saying, okay, I will use that in order to instruct me, instruct myself as I go forward. Well, to a degree, that's helpful. It is, of course, helpful to know where you've been. That does give you some framework to try to understand the world around you. 
But it's not enough. It's not sufficient. You doubt that? Ask a sailor. We got a lot of them in our community. Just go down to the docks and ask them how that works. Well, if you're truly way out at sea, whether you're in a skiff, a dinghy, a large shrimping vessel, whatever you're in, if you're truly lost at sea and you had no ability, you know, no navigation equipment or what have you, if you're lost out at sea, any sailor will tell you that you, you can't rely solely on the things you drop in the water, the shrimp pots and the buoys and whatever else to plot your way, but you've got to look to something else. Specifically, you've got to look up and look to the stars. Why? Because the stars are fixed. The stars don't move. The stars transcend you. The buoys can move, you can move, the water moves. Yet, for centuries upon centuries, sailors have navigated through things like the North Star. It provides a framework. It provides a source of transcendent revelation that helps the sailor to map where they were going. So on the one hand, yes, it's good you've got the buoys. It's good you've got the framework for where you've been. On the other hand, in order to map the reality around you, you need a transcendent source of revelation. Would it shock or surprise you to know that the same is true for you and I as believers? Same is true for anyone outside these doors. You don't have to be a sailor for this general principle to hold true. So much of our lives is mapped just on the basis of what we've done and, and thinking that, that gives us enough data to plot the way forward. And yet Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, God, in his book to us, says we need something more. We need to turn into trust in a source of revelation and truth that is greater than us. We need to look, to put it simply, as created beings, we need to look to our Creator. When we fail to do that, things don't go well for us. Might as well turn off the lights, close our eyes, and just stumble around in the dark, because that's what we do when, as created beings, we say, uh-uh, I don't want any part of my Creator's revelation. Or where we give it lip service and then forget about it. How many Bibles gather dust? while people cry and weep over their circumstances and scar tissue that's been laid upon their back, not understanding the spiritual context in which it occurs. We are called, we are pointed towards a source of transcendent revelation. The Corinthians, they didn't care for that so much. Now why? Well, think of Corinth. Where's Corinth? Corinth was in Greece. What else is in Greece? Well, Athens was in Greece. Athens, Corinth, Greece in general, this time was a haven for man-centered, man-made philosophy. And the man-centered, man-made philosophy, popularized centuries earlier by men like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, said that man is equipped on his own to derive enough data points through his mind, his intellect, his acumen to figure out how the world works. And so that's what they did, or that's what they tried. It's the same culture, the same society, said we can figure things out. That's exactly what they attempted to do. And all sorts of man-centered philosophy came out of that. But here's the problem that Paul had, is that stuff was seeping in to the church. Paul heard the reports from Corinth. Paul heard what was going on. Paul heard the arguments and the debates and discussion they were having. And he realized that the worldview, a faulty, false, man-centered worldview, had become dominant in aspects of doctrine and aspects of the church. As an aside, nothing has changed. As an aside, I think Paul would be just as confounded about our age and our day as he was in his own. But in verse 11, he's critiquing, identifying this worldview. And he says that, you know, man can sort of understand man. If you look in the mirror, you can sort of figure you out. 
But you don't have a chance of figuring God out unless God speaks. Unless God reveals something about himself. And he said it this way. He said, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, fortunately for us, God doesn't leave it at that. Fortunately for us, he desires to reveal himself to us. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 now. Verse 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know. That we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. You know, on my own, on my own, I suppose there's a few things that I can understand without help. Earlier we used the example of fire. I probably don't need a lot of help. Maybe just one experience once somewhere in my life would be enough to convince me the fire is hot. There's things that I and you, we can learn on our own. I can learn that, that fire, that fire is hot. I can learn that ice is cold. I can learn that the ocean is wet. I can learn these things on my own. I've learned that spaghetti, that it is great. And I've learned that celery, it is bad. I've learned things, you've learned things. We've all learned certain things, basic things. But, but, left to our own devices, even if we had a million years to do it in, we cannot learn anything about God that he does not reveal to us. We can guess. We can speculate. History is filled with those speculations. But we cannot know anything about God unless he reveals himself to us. We cannot get to the bottom of his nature and his attributes, let alone his plan, unless he tells us, unless he speaks. You have the deep questions. All of us in the dead of night, you ask yourselves, what's the purpose? What am I doing? What's life all about? All those existential questions, perhaps cosmic spiritual questions. Dear heavens, unless you go to a spiritual source, you won't get the answer. And so we must. And we need God to speak if we're to apprehend. In verses 12 and 13, Paul says that's what has happened. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, which is a dead spirit, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might know, that we might know that which has been given to us by God. Now I want you to notice that there are two different spirits that are identified in this verse. The first spirit, so to speak, that Paul identifies here is the spirit of the world, the spirit of the world, and the second spirit is the spirit who is from God. And in this text, Paul wants us to take away this, even if you get nothing else out of the sermon, and maybe you won't. But get this, these two spirits, the spirit of the age, the spirit of the world around us, and the spirit of God, they are opposed. And there is no blending, no fusion you can do that will make it otherwise even as a world and even sometimes as churches try. The Spirit of God and the Spirit of the world are fundamentally, diametrically opposed to one another. And Paul, not only here, but elsewhere in his epistles, he identifies these two spirits, the Spirit of the age, the Spirit of the world, the Spirit of man, the wisdom of the age, the wisdom of man, and the wisdom of God. He identifies what we see horizontally and what there is vertically, and he says there's no words to describe how vast the depth and rich and wisdom and knowledge of God is compared to that which we cling to so desperately here on earth. 
And so he says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now elsewhere, do you remember in Romans, elsewhere in Romans, Paul famously said this. He's talking about the spirit of the age. And he says, don't be conformed to it. Remember what he says? He says, do not be conformed to this world, but, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. He says, do not be conformed. There is a wisdom of the age. There's a wisdom of the world. There's man-centered wisdom. And he says, do not be conformed by its principles. You know, the secular world has doctrines too. It has teachings too. Even a form of perverted theology as well. And he says here, do not buy into this. Do not be conformed to what's outside these doors. But be transformed. And something better than you are today by the renewing of your mind through this. He says, this is essential. This is not like an optional part of the life of the Christian. Which for many folks it's become. He says, you must be transformed and not conformed. Let me ask you, let me ask you a very personal, introspective question. You know the old rubber stamps? You try a car insurance claim, you get it back in the mail, and they're big red ink, the stamp says claim denied or something like that. You remember the big stamps? On your head even now, there's one of two stamps, so to speak. Conformed or transformed? Which is it? If you're honest enough to think through your own faith, to think through your own adherence to Scripture, to think through biblical principles and how you're responding to them, to think through your church engagement and all the things by which we can and should measure and calibrate our faith, have you been conformed by the world around us to adopt its precepts, its principles... Or have you been transformed by all of that, transformed by the word, the sacraments, all these things, and renewed in your mind in the image of your Savior? Which is it? If your friends, if your spouse, if your relatives, your neighbors, parents, coworkers, if they were to assess you against, against the standard, are you conformed and more worldly or transformed? How about your kids? How about your kids? Are they being conformed? Perhaps because you put them in situations where they are conformed? Or are they transformed through the renewing of their minds? This past month, the Christian Post answered that question, so to speak, or at least gave us some data and some polls to work with. They released a poll that's done by the Barna Group, which is kind of the gold standard when it comes to evangelical polls. And the poll dealt with the theological underpinnings and foundation of millennials in particular. I think it would apply to all of us, but the poll was with regards to millennials. And in that poll, cited by the Christian Post, it was determined that only 2%, only 2% of millennials hold to what we might call a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview. Now what is that? What's a biblical worldview? Well, let me read from the article, because the article is going to attempt to identify it. A biblical worldview, as defined by Barna, includes believing that absolute moral truth exists and that such truth is defined by the Bible, as well as holding to these six specific religious views. And here they are. Those views are that Jesus Christ, that he lived a sinless life, that God is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and that he still rules today, that salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned, that Satan is real, that a Christian has a responsibility to share their faith in Christ with others, and finally, that the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. 
In other words, a biblical worldview is comprised of just a handful of doctrinal presuppositions. And honestly, you don't even have to be Presbyterian as we are this morning to fall into this camp. There are Baptists and Lutherans and Methodists and, and others who would uphold this. So this is not exactly the most uh, narrow of categories to fall within. And yet a biblical worldview is comprised. A biblical worldview is held by only 2% of millennials who accept these beliefs. Even though, even though more than half of millennials will point to a generic Christian upbringing. You understand that? Most millennials will point to, in generic at least, Christian upbringing, and yet only 2% of them come out on the other side of that with a biblical worldview. What's going to make your kids any different? Presuming you think that's problematic, what's going to make the children of our church any different? There's something wrong somewhere. Perhaps it's in the greater church, perhaps in our families. But a biblical worldview consisting of a handful of basic foundational principles, the fact that it's not shared and espoused by a whole generation that has been at least generically churched, is disconcerting about the present and it's downright ominous about the future. Let's look at verse 14. Verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. See, the natural man, apart from God's revelation, apart from a changed heart, apart from regeneration and the like, it's not simply that he shrugged his shoulder, meh, with regards to God's word. It's not that he merely is indifferent to it, but he thinks that it's flat-out foolishness. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This gets back to what we mentioned before. There's two ways in which you're going to learn anything. One is through experience and observation. The second is through revelation, particularly revelation from on high. There are things in this world that you will not understand, life and death and meaning and purpose. You will not understand them because these are largely spiritual matters. You will not understand them apart from a spiritual source, a spiritual tutor, so to speak. You will not. You cannot. This is what Paul's saying here. You know, natural man, again, he doesn't think that way. Natural man thinks he can lay hold of the storehouses of God by virtue of his acumen and his intelligence. Again, in Corinth, that was the problem. In Corinth, they all thought they could figure this thing out. In Athens, Greece at this time, they all thought you could figure your way to God. So they wrote mighty and deep essays on, on these topics. They probed spirituality and the human condition and the like, and the writings of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, contemporaries thereafter, and even in modern days have suggested that you can somehow apprehend God, lasso him, and bring him down to you through your brain power. Paul says no. Paul was no dummy. Paul was a smart guy. Paul was a smart cookie. Paul was a studied man. Paul knew what the Bible said, at least the Old Testament. Paul understood the way his fellow men worked. And yet, up until the moment that God knocked him off the horse, Paul was adamantly opposed to Christianity. To the degree that he was breathing out threats and murder the very moment or the very hour that God came calling. And when God came calling, what did God do? God revealed himself to Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Lord that Christ. God must reveal himself to man for man to understand God. Again, that sounds for us, I hope that's intuitive. I hope you've been in church long enough to, to get that. But the world around us hasn't so much. And in Corinth, they didn't. They thought that you figure out God. You work your way to God. You throw down the buoys and God's at the other end if you've piloted well enough. 
But Paul refutes that. In verse 14, he says, The natural man does not receive the things of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot know them because they are spiritually discerned. It doesn't matter if you have the intellect of Plato. It doesn't matter if you have the brain of Hawking or Einstein or any of our contemporaries. You still need God to speak in order to understand godly things. Full stop. You still need that. I still need that. And uh, apart from that, we're in trouble. Now, how does that happen? How does that begin? Well, we've shared this a few times in recent weeks. But it's something that we need to be firmly uh, fixed upon. The way a person comes to Christ, the way anyone ever figures anything out, spiritually speaking, is that God deliberately reveals it to the heart of man. Just like Saul of Tarsus. At one point, you and I were all hardened in our sins. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. Not merely ignorant, not merely angry or frustrated, not merely rebellious. We were flat out dead. At one point, like Saul of Tarsus, you and I were spiritually flatlining. If our spiritual condition was plotted on the, on the EKG, whatever they got, if it was plotted on that thing, it would have nothing. There'd be no beeps, there'd be nothing. It would be spiritually flatlining. That's who we were. That's who Saul of Tarsus was. What happened? Well, what happened is the same thing that came to Saul of Tarsus. God came knocking. At some point in your past, maybe recent past, if you were a believer, if you were truly a blood-bought son or daughter of the Most High King, here's what happened. God entered in. He laid hold of your heart. He said, you are mine. He laid hold of your heart, a heart that had been of stone, a heart that had been hardened against him. He laid hold of your heart and he changed it. He made it soft and flesh-like and able to perceive a God who you previously had rejected. This is what being born again is. Born again is not just writing your name in the back of the Bible. Being born again is not just walking the sawdust trail at a revival. Being born again is when God of his own volition and his own timing changes your heart. And after that's happened, you will come to him. And you will see him in a way that you previously didn't or couldn't. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what he's saying. He says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. You see that distinction. You cannot lay hold of this unless God lays a hold of you. But once he does so, once he does so, you are able to apprehend him and spiritual realities that you previously couldn't. And that makes all the difference. It's like data points you didn't before have, but now you do. And that makes all the difference when you look at all the hardships of this world. I've been in enough funerals and memorial services. I've served in the chaplaincy. I've seen what it's like to try to perceive spiritual matters, existential matters apart from Christ. And I've seen that people who don't have that data set, who don't have those points, who don't have that discernment, who don't have this hope, I've seen how they face those things, and it is not well. We face it different because our hearts are different. And we're operating on a basis of knowledge that came from on high. And that makes all the difference. Since our time is more limited than usual this morning, let me cut straight to our closing exhortation. You, you and me, the world around us, certainly our children, we're flat out drowning, immersed in the wisdom of the age. The world's views, they dominate Every institution. The world's view is they dominate every learning institution, academic institution, the media around us. And those views, spoiler alert, are usually opposed to everything we say and believe in here. 
Let me ask you, do the world and the church agree on, on how we came into being, on things like evolution and intelligent design? Does the world and the church agree on that stuff? Well, no. Does the world and the church agree on the identity of Jesus Christ? No. Does the world and the church agree on the authority of Scripture? No. How about abortion? Does the world and the church agree on abortion? Do the world and the church agree on marriage, gender, family issues, and the like? Do the world and the church agree on sin, salvation, or much of anything at all? No. Truth has no part with error. Dark has no part with light. God has no part with Belial. And in this season or in any season, when man tries to fuse his views with God's, that's not how it works. You can make a salad out of that. You don't want to eat it. Here's my final point. Remember this. I'll play off something Rex mentioned earlier. He was talking about holiness. He was calling about the need to be set apart. He was calling about this separateness of which, which God's people are. The church was first called the ecclesia. The ecclesia is a Greek term, and it means this. It means the called out ones. Called out from what? Called out from the world. We are called out of the trough of sin and depravity in which we once wallowed into something good and something right and something holy and something stable. We are called out. We are called out from the world. As God's people, we're not called to adopt the world's principles. If they've infiltrated your life, your family's life, root them out because they're insidious and they will do destruction. We are called not to adopt the world's principles or priorities or teachings. Furthermore, as a church, we are not called to be more like the world in order to reach the world. That's not the way this works at all. We are called out to be separate. We are called out to teach and to preach that old, old story of a crucified and risen Savior named Jesus Christ on whom our hope and our eternity rests. That's the rock on which the church for thousands of years has faithfully stood, and that's the rock that you and I are to stand on this day. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.